Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of Talk House Film. On today's show, we have multi-hyphenate extraordinaire Alexi Pappas in conversation with actress Robin Tunney. And those two are, I discovered, cousins. I actually have a bit of a backstory about how I know Alexi. Our paths crossed for the first time about seven years ago in a minibus at a small film festival in the Pacific Northwest where the film Tall as a Baobab Tree, made by a first-time director called Jeremy Teicher, was playing. As the festival was winding down, a bunch of folks, including Tiger and myself, were being driven to a nearby urban park for a walk in the woods. And Alexi, who was a co-writer of the film, as well as Jeremy's then-girlfriend, was along for the ride too. What I remember about her from that meeting was that she was smart and peppy and super friendly, and that while the rest of us had a nice relaxing walk, Alexi bounded off for a long run through the forest. Since that meeting, Alexi has flourished on multiple fronts in ways that are beyond impressive. She has made two more films with Tiger, who's now her husband, Tracktown, which she starred in, co-wrote, produced, and co-directed, and Olympic Dreams, which she co-wrote, produced, and starred in opposite Nick Kroll. Oh, and she's also represented Greece at the 2016 Olympics, breaking the Greek national record for the 10,000 meters. And she's a social media star with a legion of fans known as Bravies, a nod to a poem Alexi wrote where she pledged to run like a bravey, who were inspired to fearlessly pursue their dreams as she does. The reason for today's podcast conversation is Pappas' excellent first book, Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas, came out just a couple days ago on January 12th. It's a memoir in the form of a series of essays, tackling not only running and her creative work, but also some of the most intimate aspects of her personal life, such as the suicide of her mother, who was bipolar and manic depressive when she was just four, and her own battles with depression. Pappas has found a number of mentors in life, such as Mindy Kaling, Maya Rudolph, who wrote the introduction to Bravey, and Robin Tunney, the actress who is Pappas's cousin by marriage. Tunney, of course, broke through in the 1990s with films like Empire Records and The Craft, was one of the leads in the long-running CBS procedural The Mentalist, and most recently was the star of the CBS show The Fix. When Alexi and Robin spoke last year, Robin had just finished reading Bravey, and the book was a springboard for a very open, insightful, and sometimes funny conversation about topics such as the shadow of mental illness, self-care, the challenges of finding the balance between career and family, bonding with others over trauma, how the thing we're best at may still give us discomfort or pain, and a whole lot more. Hey, Alexi. Hi, Robin. I finished your book. Thank you for reading it. I'm like fully aware that you have a overflowing in the best way life and that you took the time to read before it even came out was really did mean a lot to me. That is genuine. It's funny because I wish everybody came with an autobiography. I wish I could get one <laughs> of everybody in my life and have that insight. Like you can study for 20 years and not know them to the degree that you get to know them in an autobiography, what I thought was so amazing, because I've read thousands of biographies and autobiographies. I love them. It's an addiction. I love them too. I love them more than other categories of books, I think. At the bookstore, I have to be like Robin Tunney. You cannot buy another autobiography, like buy some fiction 
And then I'll see something out of the corner of my eye. And sometimes they keep them near the register and I just grab one anyway. Yes. And I've read a few about depression. And the thing that I thought was so remarkable about your book was that it was actually an instructional manual of how to deal with it in very succinct, bare-bone ways. I'd read William Styron's book, Darkness Visible, and Emma Forrest wrote this book called Your Voice in My Head. And they were both very beautiful details of depression and what it felt like, but there was no advice as to how to get out of it. I just thought it was so inspiring and useful and could really make a difference for people. It's not just about how you feel. It's about how to make yourself better. Well, I I appreciate that. And I mean, it kind of came from a place of like always being aware, really young, that this was a possibility for me because it was so strong on my mom's side of the family, like her and her brother took their own life and her own mom had mental illness as far as I know. And so I was always like, what is the ticking time bomb? And like, when will it happen to me? Because I know I'm half her or maybe more. And genetically predisposed. Yeah. Yeah. And the awareness that it probably would at some point and not being sure when and also growing up feeling like people talked about depression and suicide as if they were inevitable. And that was always really scary. Some of the stories I'd heard about her were like, she just had to go. That is so sad. And so I think when it happened to me, I just didn't really know that there could be a way out of it. And when I learned about that, I felt silly that I didn't know any of those tools before. And I wish that I had, and I wish for people to have the vocabulary and tools to see it more like a scratch on your brain rather than this forever, you know. A life sentence or a death sentence. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because I I feel like people tell that story so they can move forward. Do you know what I mean? Like, they had Mm -hmm. to do it because it's the only way for them to be able to sort of get on with their life and just digest what happened. No, I just mean like a family member, like people saying that about your mother. Well, this was inevitable. There was no choice because otherwise they'd feel like there was something they could do. So I feel like they have to do that, but it doesn't need to be that way. And the other thing I was really moved by was the idea that that we need talk therapy. And I think since the 80s, it's been this thing of like, oh, you have a chemical imbalance. Here's a whole bunch of pills. There's nothing you can do about it. Just take the pills for your chemical imbalance and don't do anything else. And this idea that you need a good doctor to talk to and we need to talk and work things out and have a really regimented schedule, like the same way you're regimented in what you do as an athlete, as a creative person toward your mental well-being. And everybody can use that. And especially I know your fan base is a lot of young girls because there's so much. All these young girls and young people, they know all the button words like I'm anxious, I'm depressed, but they don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And well, it's funny when you talk about just like we would treat our bodies, because I even think about when I first moved to L.A., you know, a little over a year ago, and I actually got advice from you about a massage therapist. And, you know, look, you are an active, thriving person, but that you take care of your body in that way and that you might see a massage therapist regularly. I think that even that attention to our body is like a newer thing. Like in the last 10 years, 
my dad is paying attention to his body or taking care of it before it's a problem. So that's newer. And I think with mental health, maybe that can follow in suit. Like it's not just for the dire situations that we might get that kind of help, but it's more preemptive, regular care, like we might do for our body, like we might- Also connected. Right, right, If you're eating terribly, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not taking any time out for yourself, it's going to affect your mental well-being. And I thought that that was another part of the book that I was, am I talking about it too much? Um, No, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. No one can see. (laughs) I'm very honored. I thought it was really interesting from the worksheets that they had your mother do when she was institutionalized that were basically making her sicker. The idea of making her write down how she could be a better mother and how she could improve her career while she was struggling and should only have been focusing on herself. And I think culturally, especially for women, there is this idea that, oh, no, 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 no. You have to put the pedal to the metal. You have to do it all. You work. You, you're a wife. You're a mother. You have to do it all. Don't complain because women have just gotten the right to work and parent. So do it all. And I really felt for her in those moments. With men, it's so much easier for them to be like, oh, I have to focus on whatever this is right now. Whereas women are expected as the caretaker to be helping everybody else. I think to take a step back for the people listening, Robin, you're my now cousin. We've married into becoming cousins. And just so people know, I'm like a later bloomer into the acting world, but I certainly am grateful to have you as a mentor to me. And there have been times when you don't even know that you're setting a good example for me. But one of the conversations I'll never forget was really about family decisions and career decisions. And I felt really grateful when you told me that like, it's okay to have a family if I want one anytime, whenever, but it's also okay to take the time for myself to explore that career. And I just, I wanted to know if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your own trajectory, because I think it's remarkable that you've so seemingly confidently made the choices that you've made in your life to pursue your dreams. And, and now I think your life has shifted a bit, but you're the same person. I always knew that I wanted to have children, but I was a late bloomer with that. I had things to get over from my own childhood. I had to figure out how to choose to be with the kind of person that you should have a child with. And I did career things. And thanks to modern medicine, I got to have my kids later on. Men have always had that choice and women have not. And if I hadn't have had doctors and IVF, I would not have been able to accomplish what I had in my career and have a certain amount of financial independence by the time I was ready to have kids. Yeah. Because I was ready much later than my body would have allowed me to. And now I can focus on my kids and be present in a way that I wouldn't have been able to, especially with my career. Because as an actress, you travel all over the place and you're here, you're there, you're everywhere. And you can't drag your kids around for the show. They need to be in school. They need regularity. And the idea that I was able to work and then save and now I can focus on this and pick and choose when I want to leave because I did work. 
and I had income for that much that I was able to save and I don't have to do it now is a huge, huge gift. And we didn't have those options before and men always have. There's also the thing with work too, where like what man has ever had a baby where people said, oh, are you going to keep working after the baby? To the man, they right, only asked right, the, the right, woman. right. I'm, I'm just so curious because I feel like for me, putting together those mentor, like that advice has been like a patchwork quilt where I seek it out in people that I'm able to have interactions with like you, or I seek out advice through podcasts, you know, through ways, even when I can't be in the same room as someone. And when you were making these decisions, I'm genuinely curious, did you have good mentors or did you have good instincts or did you have bad experiences or good experiences? You know, like what drove you? When I was 19 years old, I did a sitcom for CBS. And I was so excited that they were paying me to do something. And there was another actress on the sitcom named Margaret Witten, and she lived in New York. And the first day I met her, we were at the table read, and she said, if you're on a sitcom, how are you ever going to do Shakespeare in the park? And I thought, I've done Mars bar commercials. I'm not doing Shakespeare in the park. What are you talking about? <laughs> That's not on the agenda. And she gave me this book by Susan Faludi called You Just Don't Understand. And it was this book about the differences in how men and women communicate. And every morning she walked in with the New York Times and an Armani blouse and she stood up to the male writers and she had a, 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 a real voice and she wasn't afraid to use it. And she wrote a sports section for the New York Times and she kept on saying, what about this for your career? And she gave me this idea that I could be something better than other people were casting me as and showed me that a woman can have an opinion and a voice. And it was before email and cell phones and all that stuff. And I went to see her and visited her a few times. We'd lost touch. And I did my first play in New York five years ago in opening night there was the biggest bouquet of flowers and they were from her. And she said, see, I told you. Oh my gosh. And I hadn't spoken to her in 15 years and she'd gone to see the play that night. I'm sure she knows probably intuitively the impact she had on you. It sounds like you saw her on a daily basis and what a privilege, but even just the one instance of her saying that to you and, and recommending that book to you, it's so impactful. Like people can really do that to each other. I'm just in awe because I know you moved to LA when you were 18. I mean, that's the braviest thing I, that you could have done, right? But I'm sure it was, your brain wasn't even fully developed. So I'm sure there was a lot of inputs, you know, into your decisions in life if you took them or not. It's you know? weird. I was thinking about this when I read your book because I was really surprised. I didn't realize that when you had the capacity, the athletic prowess to go to the Olympics, that running still hurt. I thought running felt good for people who did that and that there was endorphins. I didn't realize how much pain was involved and what you were running from, the grief of losing your mother. But I feel like it's a similar thing with acting. When I arrived here, I needed it to work out. Yeah. Failure was not on the count. There was I didn't have a fallback plan. 
I didn't have any money. There was nothing else I could do. And I was willing to throw myself into the fire for it. And sometimes I wonder if people with better boundaries wouldn't do things like run in the Olympics or try to become actors because yeah. you really do have to be willing to lose your dignity. You have yes. to be like willing to beg. Yes. And I think that there's people who might have been parented better or were raised in a different way where they don't need it enough. There, I think we all have the survival instinct in us, right? I think something that I was excited that you, I think, identified with from the book was that the difference between being like interested in a dream and committed to it, where those who are just interested in chasing whatever dream they have might stop or or see any obstacle as an excuse as to why that dream was impossible. And I think those of us who are committed, what's like from a you know, challenging survival place or otherwise just plow ahead, however, whatever that means. And I've always felt like the athletics and the acting are similar because like you're performing, you're vulnerable, you're in a costume in both scenarios, you might fail, your people are watching and it's a privilege, not a right to be there. And it's a privilege that you feel like you have to continually earn and prove your indispensability, right? I love that. But it is also, like you said, takes a certain type of person. It's weird because Nikki, my partner, he had wanted to act and we've had conversations where I'm like, well, why didn't you keep on going or what made you decide? Because he stopped before I met him. And he said, it just wasn't making me feel good. Mm -hmm. And what I do does not make me feel good 85% of the time. Yes. Um, (laughs) But because it's uncomfortable and I cannot stop doing it. I'm constantly trying to push the envelope and I spend hours now I'm writing and I'll do whatever because the idea of feeling uncomfortable is really familiar to me and I don't mind it. Maybe there's like a joy in that in that discomfort because you know that it's leading towards your moon or your north star or whatever. You know, it's like to accept discomfort as like a sensation, not a threat, is a really like meaningful step to take in life too. Right. Well, also like recognizing where, that it's not permanent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes, it's not permanent. And that's the same with the mental health stuff where like most people in those situations don't have the understanding to accept you could not feel this way forever because you just feel like you're going to feel that way forever when you're in those places. That everything's temporary. And I feel like when people lose sight of that, that's when they slip into really bad depression or, or bad states. I think we spoke about this when we were at La Pen Quotidian, the idea that your feelings are just feelings and they're not facts. Right. And to try to retrain your brain when you have them and as far as what that is and that everything's ephemeral, it's going to pass. Yeah, yeah. One of the things in the book was bringing in another mentor, Maya Rudolph, to write the foreword. And I feel like there's a great deal of comedy and, you know, she talks about this, but there's a there's a great deal of crossover between these challenges in life and like finding like a sense of humor in them. And I think that's something she wrote well in the forward. Yeah. But I also, I think it's something that you do well, which to like take yourself seriously enough to pursue your dreams, but also have a bit of a sense of humor 
when it's appropriate in the process, you know? And I, tr I tried to find that with the book. It's just not productive to simply be bitter or upset. Well, it's also not who you are. I think that there's that sort of age-old, like, all comedy is rooted in tragedy. And the funniest people you've met have had the most harrowing lives. How true do you find that to be? I've found that to be true. To be true. It's interesting. I thought it was funny in your book when you said Jeremy's dad found you a life coach. It was a very pragmatic, okay, this is what you need. And the environment I grew up in, we all communicated by making fun of each other. There was no earnest. There were no toasts. There were no pronunciations of love. It was like a dark comedy, just relentless at each other. And sometimes it's hard for me when I'm in other family dynamics to completely feel comfortable because it's not the way I grew up. And when your book, too, you're saying your dad was not affectionate. He was not a big toucher. No touching and no talking about feelings. I didn't have it either. So I think it's cultural in a way. I don't know if it comes from your parents' heritage, but I'm Irish. And everybody in my family, you get blind drunk on Christmas Eve. There might be some pronunciations of love in that. There's gambling at parties, but it's like family things. And they have each other's back and they really love each other. And they would give each other anything. But that's how they relate by making fun of each other and making jokes. Yeah. Well, I wonder how that will affect us with our kids, with our kids. I mean, my kids are invisible and don't exist, but yours do. That's the most confronting thing about parenting when you see your child mimicking that's so you or making a joke out of something. Inevitably, it'll come through. But I think it's also a good way of having a sense of humor about yourself is the only way you can grow. Because if you're punitive, you're never going to try something new. Right. Or afraid of being wrong. And like, that's a gift. I don't know if it's from my mother or whatever, but I have no problem with trying anything before I know how to do it. And I'm not afraid of looking like a fool. And I think that there's downsides to that, but you have to accept them. You can try to work on them. But my kids are definitely going to have my best and worst qualities. That's amazing. If people could see your, your face right now. It's it's all it's all sorts of expressions, <laughs> all with an undertone of amusement, you know? And I think that's something that I've always observed about you is like you're doing amazing stuff, but you also seem to be amused a bit by what you're doing. And that's fun to see because it makes it feel a little less scary to think about doing something like you're doing. Having kids, you mean? Having like a little bit of amusement or a sense of humor about it, even though it's unknown territory. And I think all of the things that you've done are like pretty original things, even though you're joining traditions of actors and mothers and, and all the things that you do, writers. I think that the way that you've done it is pretty original and the way that you see yourself feels like with that humor and with that amusement of... It's a lightness, even if what you're doing is hard. And that sounds like a more fun way to live. I don't know. I, I don't admire know, but you. I wonder if that's a good choice or if that's just the way people are hardwired. Man, it's just so cool because, you know, you're my cousin now. I feel so lucky to, like, have family where, man, I, I do feel like we're related. And, like, I do feel like you understand that those stories in the book, you're like, yep, I get it. 
maybe it'll surprise some people, but I genuinely like when I knew you were reading it, I was like, I feel like she can handle it and she also gets it. It's interesting because the details that you share about your mother, I knew that she'd passed away and I knew how old you were, but I didn't know the times leading up and what you'd remembered and what you'd taken away from that. Because Nikki's mom died when he was three. Right. So you were a year older. So I think that you have more real memories. Yeah. I think his memories are based on photos where he made the story up with the photo. Yeah. I was almost five. Like, you're pretty, you can remember. Yeah. It was harrowing, but it is weird. It made you the Olympian. It made you the artist. It made you everything that you are now, which is amazing. And a survivor. To think that there's people in the world who they'll get into a bad relationship or they're so afraid that they cannot take care of themselves that they're not going to be able to survive. And when from a really young age you're faced with adversity and surviving and navigating your way and other people not doing that stuff for you, the way your father parented was really kind of great because he did make you self-sufficient. And that's always the, like, what I try to remind myself with, with my kids. My job is to make sure they can take care of themselves, not to do everything for them. Mm-hmm. And this idea of like, you know, you can teach them lessons, you can do things, but they're going to have to fall on their face. They're going to have to be uncomfortable sometimes, all this stuff, like where just like not throw everything at them. Although he does have lots of snacks. I mean, you and I have this in common where we're like, the biggest fear is that there is not an overstocked fridge and cabinet. And I think we're allowed to have that for the rest of our lives. Like, my fridge will never be empty. And it's that's like the just treat. the way it is. Yeah. And that's a harmless... When I think about some of the the overcompensations we might do now, there are some like that that are perfectly harmless. It's not going to hurt anybody if I buy two of the kind of cereal that I don't want to run out. You know, it's like, that is what it is. Sometimes I do find it hard to bond with somebody if I felt like they've never had trauma. Yeah. So, okay. So that is really interesting. And it's not anyone's fault, right? So how do we, I even have found that some people that I meet who haven't, it's not their fault, right? Not at all. And it's also what you would hope for for your kids, where I'm like, that's the girl who had the right jeans, who had all the clothes, who had blueberry pancakes for breakfast. Yeah. And who went on vacation where I would put self-tanner on my legs and pretend I'd gone to Florida because, like, we weren't going anywhere. There was no money for that stuff. Everything was a story or, like, that's the girl who had all those things and that you do still carry a little bit of jealousy in, in, in a way, yeah. but you're like, I do not know how to relate with that person. And that you do become the little kid in those situations. I know, I know, I know. I totally get it. And I'm like, well, is it fair for us to say, because perhaps it's all relative and everybody deals with their own kind of trauma and adversity. It's just relative. Or is this just even more reason to write and read memoirs because you can create empathy in that way and that's how people can absorb through osmosis experiences and perspective or is it that there will always be a sort of special bond between people who connect in that way and a chasm between those who don't I'm just thinking about it because I you can feel it I mean I think that's why 
when I met Maya Rudolph, I like just felt familial with her and it wasn't as if we... Well, you'd both lost your mothers and you didn't know that about her, but somehow you sensed that there was something... Just like something where you're like, it's just a certain way of growing up and and it, it creates, or at least our experiences were more similar because we also had similar family. Like she had an older brother she was close with. She was close with her dad. We have a stepmom in our life who feel like they are playing, you know, similar roles. And yeah, I don't know that that thing about some people relate differently. Like, I don't know what to say about it because you're like I don't want to be offensive and be like some people have been through trauma and some people haven't but I think that what you're saying is that there's a drive that however unsustainable it is there's a sort of drive when you do have it that is within you and other people maybe without it can be driven still it's just a different reservoir you think there's also the thing where well, so it's hard to bond. I mean, I think the idea yeah. that you can't bond with everybody is okay. Okay, yes. And accepting that and feeling okay with that. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, and this is you, like, unknowingly mentoring me again because I'm genuinely, like, what do I do? And do I blame myself if I cannot connect with everybody and not everybody will like me and I won't like everybody? That that's okay, and it's the same with work. You can't work with everybody. And I want to make everybody happy inherently. And I want, you know, the director to think I did the best job possible. I want everybody to love me. And there are situations where that's not possible. And just to be like, okay, what? If this is hard work in a conversation or somebody's not laughing at your jokes, so they're not getting it that's okay. They're hardwired differently and you can just move on. Because in the past, I would just try harder and be punitive. <laughs> like, right, what's right, wrong? Right. This, she doesn't like me. And like, and knowing that, that, you know, I think that that's one of the great things that comes with age. It's weird because I'm in a business where being an actress, like aging is the worst thing that could possibly happen to anybody in Hollywood terms. Like it doesn't get easier, it gets harder. But I feel so much happier than I did when I was younger. And I feel like in my 20s, even into my, my mid-30s, I was just searching for so much that I wasn't enjoying things in the same way. And like with age, like simple things like that, like, oh, this person isn't doesn't get me. That's fine. That's their problem. It's not mine. I'm going to, you know, keep on going. Or like you don't have to be friends with everybody. And it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you because somebody's not trying to forge a friendship or, you know, your books are full. And it's also a thing with having kids. Like you constantly, I like wrote about this in something. It was like, I felt like when I was younger, before I'd had my kids, I always had to be doing something. And I scheduled my day to the point where like, it was like to keep anxiety at bay. We're like, okay, am I doing the right thing? And doing series television was perfect for me because somebody told me what time to wake up, when I was going to eat my food and what to say all day long. And I felt like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing my job. That's you as an Olympian. I want you to keep going, but that's like literally what it felt like. Because if you have a coach telling you, this is what you run today. This is when you show up. This is the warm-up. These are your training partners. Go off and do this stuff. Keep up with him, blah, blah, blah. It's the same feeling. And it sort of like eased my anxiety. But then on the hiatus on the weekends, I'm like, what do I do with my hands? 
Like yes. I couldn't just sit. I always had to be doing something. And with my kids, I always know what to do with my hands because they always need me to. So it's a thing where you're yeah. not left, you know, with, with idle time. But yeah, no, I, I used to joke around that like, People on television series always ended up on another one right away because it was like prisoners returning to jail because you don't know what to do with your day if you're not being told what to wear, what to say, what to eat, where you're going to be, and you're doing it for 19 hours a day. And that sort of schedule made me feel safe. Yes, I completely understand. It's the same life of an Olympic athlete. And it's also what I think I'm craving when I think about a life in the creative world, and it's why television feels safe when I think about it. Because movies are a little different. They have a lot more ebbs and flows. A lot of the time, as you can you know, relate, there's like seasons to the movie. And I know there's seasons with television, but that experience that you're describing sounds exactly amazing, comforting, thrilling, safe, even though I know it's, it's completely daring and brave and challenging. But what I wanted to ask is, did you ever get okay with, I don't love when people ask me this, but like stillness, has there been a shift or is it just now that you have kids and that that feels like the thing with your hands? I try to meditate, you know, and better with the guided ones, but I still, I don't love doing nothing. Like Nikki loves to go on vacation. He's got to talk me into going on vacation. I'm like, what are we going to do? Yeah. Well, I remember I was hanging out with Jeremy one night and we were just hanging out. And I was like, Jeremy, what is hanging out? It's so embarrassing to have even said that. But I was like, what do we do? Like, what do we, what is it? Do we just sit here? Or is it like, if we start talking, we're going to talk about our creative work. What is hanging out? Like, what is doing nothing? And it was as if I was like an alien that didn't know how to do nothing. Yeah, no, it makes me feel guilty. And I like to do things. I, I, I like, you know, writing or making something or feeling like, uh, you know, or like tear the, the house apart and organize the closet. So like, let's paint the wall. I need a project. And that's probably something I could work on. And it might be anxiety, but... <laughs> I don't know. I've been asking myself this because I do think as long as we're sometimes actively doing nothing or like actively recovering to make the choice to like take a nap or or drink tea or talk on the phone with a friend. I never talk on the phone, too. That's the other like I never I very rarely talk on the phone. And when I cook, that was the other thing in your book I thought was really interesting where you're like, I had to allow myself to take the time to cook things and to have that ritual. Because, you know, I cook too. I'll be like, how can I use the least amount of pans so that Mm -hmm. I'll have to clean up less afterwards so I'm not spending too much time cleaning? Like, I'm always trying to consolidate and juggle things. But maybe that's how you feel like you're thriving. Like, as long as truly, I just don't, I'm just not going to be the person that's like, I think that's a problem because I, I just don't. I do think if at the end of the day, your willpower is super low and like you're super drained and not happy, then that's the problem. But if if for some reason you have different things and activities and, and triggers that refuel your willpower or make you feel like you're thriving than Nikki or than anyone else in the world, 
that's not a problem. That's just knowing yourself. That was the really interesting part about your book that I liked was that idea of willpower chips that you and Jeremy, like, you know, the, the points and like you're either doing something that's adding to your willpower or taking away. And I think people can relate to that in a way that's not even as athletes or with depression. It's like this idea of like, you haven't slept enough the night before, like you are going to eat a candy bar and get the sugar rush. And like, that's not good for you. Yeah. And it's not good for your body. And when your willpower is low, you make decisions that aren't in your best interest. And this idea of like self-preservation to sort of be the best version of you was so interesting and something I think that uh, we have a really hard time with in our society. It's like this idea of like, oh, that person's selfish. When really it's the most generous thing you can do because you're the best version of yourself to the other people around you because you've done it. As you have children, too, the time gets even more narrow because it is this thing where, like, I have to take a shower. And sometimes it'll be, like, it's so busy in the morning. I haven't had time to take a shower. And I'm, I don't feel good because I haven't had a shower. And it's, like, take the four minutes and jump in and jump out. But you do have to remind yourself of stuff like that all day long. It's, okay, it makes you a better person. Right, 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 right. And it's, it's like, not useful to have the secondary emotion which is like judging your emotion or judging your need like those are just the least useful things in the world like feeling bad for needing xyz or feeling bad for feeling xyz it's just a backpack we wear and it helps me to know that someone like you exists who is similarly productive might be the word but it's just like whatever it is I'm glad to know that there's someone else in the world that feels like me because that in and of itself is enough to give me the confidence to feel like reorganizing my kitchen on a Saturday is a fine thing to do. You know, it's like sometimes what's cool is just knowing that someone else is like that because there's less humiliation in pairs and in teams and in groups than there is alone. That was another thing in your book I thought was really interesting is your mother's family's inability to recognize what she was going through that basically catapulted her into further depression because there was shame attached to what she was going through. And when you have a mother who's saying, I can't talk to you until you snap out of this, you need to stop behaving like this. Nobody's going to get better. And that's a more extreme version of what we were just talking about. But it's, it's like, okay, I don't, I'm not great on vacation. Okay, I'm not great with this. Like, there's no shame in it. It's who you are and, like, you can deal with things. But with, like, with your mother, it was, like, the people in her life other than your father weren't allowing her to have these feelings and weren't willing to try and understand what she was going through as opposed to just sort of judging her. My dad's Irish and he'd say, you know, the best thing for depression is working 15 hours a day. That's what we did in Ireland. I was like, yeah, and everybody's an alcoholic. How did that work out for them, dad? (laughs) You know what I mean? This idea of like, no, 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 no. You're just not working hard enough. If you're idle, like that's why you're depressed as opposed to understanding the feeling and addressing the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was like really cathartic. I read the book to my dad first in person because you read it out loud to him in person I had to I needed him to like hear it from me first and I needed him to hear it before the world heard it because he gets really embarrassed if he thinks that what he's doing isn't the objectively good thing as a parent like he always had the self-conscious thing growing up and I think that's why 
he made sure we had a Christmas tree, even if we got it like on Christmas and we didn't really care if we had one or not. He's like, it's the right thing to do. And so with the book, I was really nervous about what he'd think. And so I flew him to LA and read it to him over the course of a weekend out loud. And it was incredible because he did not ever understand why my mom died. Like he didn't ever understand the nuances because he'd never been through it as to why medical care didn't help her because, you know, you assume that it would. I don't know if he blamed himself at all, but he certainly didn't understand why it wasn't useful and that it wasn't really her. It was just not handled well in the 90s. And so reading it to him was like this tremendous, like, catharsis, I think, for him and for us as, like, a father-daughter. And I don't know where how I even got on this subject except that it was great. Like, he understood—I don't know. It just helped, and I think it makes her more of a human, too, because— before that, to us, to me, she was a mystery in, of sorts, and to, I don't know what she was to him. A challenge? I don't know. I mean, his, the love of his life, I hope, but also something that he could never quite figure out. And I think once we realized that it wasn't—it was a thing we had to learn, and hopefully in our world we can just take whatever lessons we can at face value and just recalibrate so that this stuff doesn't happen. And the whole book is not— was supposed to be just about mental health, but it happened to be very formative for me. I think it's about overcoming any sort of obstacle, you know, and everybody's faced with them. It's interesting, though, because I feel like when you're the person who doesn't have the fancy lunch with Tupperware and notes in it, and you're the person who doesn't have you know, like I said, the new genes or whatever, you do feel like by sharing that with the world that somehow you're calling your parents out. But it's weird. My dad has absolutely no problem with my sort of, he thinks it's hilarious and he doesn't feel shame toward any, I I, I was doing The Mentalist and I had to go and do Conan like during a break And I'd done the pre-interview the day before, and I told the story about how my mom and dad pretended to be Hurricane Katrina survivors to get a discount at this buffet near their house. And they practiced the accent, and they went in and did, like, an overly drawn, bad New Orleans accent to get, you know, 40% off or something. And I got to the interview, and I was like, oh, I don't want to tell that story. My dad might be embarrassed. And they were like, Conan wants a story. And I was like, well, I really don't want to get in trouble with my, I, I'm really not comfortable telling that story. I, I really don't want to tell it. And it was this thing of like, Conan wants a story. So I was like, mm. and I was like wrestling and I wanted to make the people happy. Yes, like, I am totally I, and there's get so this. much adrenaline when you're doing those things and it's live or whatever. And it was like easier just to say yes. And I told the story and people were laughing really hard. And then, I got in the car to go back to work and I was like, oh my God, like I sold my parents down the river for a funny story and they're going to see this tonight because it airs that night. I was like, they're going to see this and they're going to be horrified. And like, how dare you do this? Like, where are your values? And I was like beating myself up and I got home from work and it wasn't on in LA yet. It, was, it, it aired in Chicago and I was like, Ugh. my phone rang. It was my dad. 
and he was laughing his head off. Mm. And I was like, what? He goes, Robin, that was hilarious. And I was like, you didn't care. He's like, no, but you have a really big problem. And I was like, what? He goes, I'm aging. I'm old. I'm not going to be around forever. You're going to have to get your own material if I'm dead. Like, what are you going to talk about on these talk shows if you don't talk about me? Start doing some interesting things yourself. And it was like, I put this thing about like, you know, sharing this personal story that was like funny and embarrassing, but my dad didn't find it embarrassing. My dad was like, you know what? If you can't afford the buffet and you want a discount, like go about it anyway. He didn't care. (laughs) Like he thought it was funny. Yeah. And that's amazing because they can, you know, I think that is the lesson is that like our parents can handle it. Like I did, I did find that like my dad over, he surprised me with how much he embraced it and how much I was trying to like protect him or was afraid of what this book would do to him or do to my mom. I was afraid. And maybe the lesson is that we don't need to be afraid to protect those people and they can handle it and they're proud. And as long as we are coming from a, a good place, which we are, like we love them and this and that, that'll become, that's clear. That will shine through no matter what. But also that that's a testament to like who they are as people that if they did it, they own it. And that's the way it was. Because there are people who rewrite history and like to be like, yeah, I never did yeah. that or whatever it is. But I mean, your dad in the book is like, he's a real hero. And I loved all the things with your au pairs, your Czech Republic au pair that was like the track star. The bull cuts and the crooked teeth. I loved her. Um, But, you know, your dad did the very best job that he could. But as like a single parent, like he hoarded newspapers. The house was dirty. He probably didn't like bringing people over there. And, you know, he can take it because it happened and it's true. And look at you now. Right. That is, I think, the perfect conclusion to this conversation is just look at us now look at us now I think we can just both of us you know and I've like I'm so so thankful for you Robin like just I mean you reading you taking the time to have this conversation and you just being the the radiant you're like a sun to me like an intangible ray I mean seriously like you live not so far from me now there are times when Jeremy and I are like what would Robin do or what would Robin and Nikki do? And to have that kind of guiding guidepost is a gift. So thank you. You're sweet. Thank you. Thanks for writing the book. It's so good. I can't wait for the world to read it. A perfect place to end indeed. And thank you so much to Alexi and Robin for being on the TalkHouse podcast and for being such game participants by not only chatting so openly, but also recording themselves. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Bravey, Chasing Dreams, Befriending Pain, and Other Big Ideas is out now and highly recommended. And we encourage you to buy it from your local independent bookstore. This episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell, and the Talk has podcast theme music, as ever, was composed and performed by The Range. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, visit talkhouse.com film, where you can find all kinds of good stuff, including an essay written by Alexi and Jeremy Teicher on collaborating as a married couple. Subscribe to the TalkCast podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And dig into our previous episodes, like Robin's co-star on The Mentalist, Simon Baker, talking with Griffin Dunn. And of course, go hit us up on all our socials at TalkCast across the board. I'm Nick Dawson, and until next time, take it easy and stay safe.